everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm really excited to share this week's episode with you about someone who wrote an article that really spoke to me this summer, and we finally got our schedules to align and were able to do this interview. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a moment. First, just a couple reminders that I have a group coaching call coming up on the 11th, February 11th, which is all about inner child. So this question I get a lot especially people that listen to the show, you hear me do so much work and questioning about the inner child. So much comes back to our childhood. So if you're actually curious about the inner child workshop, the three-day virtual retreat that we're teaching in March, but you just don't know if it's right for you or you're just not too sure about this inner child stuff, why don't you just join me for the virtual group coaching? It's only $20 and it will give you a taste of what inner child work is like. If you haven't attended a virtual group coaching call with me, it's Zoom, it's video. I come on, I teach for a bit, I guide you through a meditation, and then I do hot seat coaching. So I bring people on the screen, I do some work with them. It's a beautiful opportunity. And if you can't make it live, then you can always watch the recording and learn so much from that. Next, I have opened my first coaching training institute with three other epic coaches, my husband and our dear friends, Alexi Panos and Preston Smiles. The doors are open. It is filling up very quickly. People in our communities have been wanting this for a long time. It's unlike any coaching training program because we include things like somatic work, breath work, sexual dynamics, polarity, all kinds of stuff that isn't really covered in a lot of the traditional coaching programs. Our intention is to make you a master coach, a really embodied coach and leader, and to really pass our wisdom and tools to the next generation of coaches. And that doesn't mean younger coaches. It just means the next generation of coaches that are really rising to leadership. So you can go to elementumcoachinginstitute.com to check that out. And Elementum is spelled E-L-E-M-E-N-T-U-M, Coaching Institute. It's called Elementum because we're giving you all the elements to become a master coach and the momentum to really have a lucrative, impactful business. So let me tell you about today's guest. Hayden Dawes wrote an article for The Medium, which is titled An Invitation to White Therapists. And I think it also applies to coaches as well. And he wrote it this summer, especially in the wake of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor and many others, to really bring awareness to a missing piece in therapy and coaching. And I was really moved by his article and found it very helpful. And so I wanted to have him on the show. And one of the things that Hayden teaches and is so passionate about is giving ourselves radical permission. Radical permission for what, you ask? anything. Radical permission for whatever you need. Maybe it's radical permission to rest. Maybe it's radical permission to stop doing or start doing something that you love. We talk about so much in this interview. I really trust you're going to enjoy getting to know Hayden Dawes. Let me tell you a little bit more about him. He's a licensed social worker whose practice experience involves hospital social work, mental health, and addiction treatment, in addition to people involved in the legal system. Although grounded in relational experiential approaches to mental health treatment, Hayden has been trained in advanced trauma modalities and remains curious about all forms of mental health treatment. He's currently a PhD student, which is one of the reasons it was hard to get the schedules coordinated because he's very busy, especially with his research in examining the psychosocial challenges impacting people of color and LGBTQIA individuals. He's also interested in seeking advanced methods to intervene on providers' implicit and explicit biases. 
If you want to read the article I was talking about, again, it's featured on the Medium, titled An Invitation to White Therapist, and it's since been widely used in direct practice education, consultation, and supervision. Hayden is also an avid CrossFitter, traveler, dance partner, and reality TV specialist. During the COVID pandemic, Hayden expanded his personal radical permission practice to create a hashtag radical permission project for the greater community across social media platforms to encourage people to set intentions with grace. Before we dive in, I have something to share with you. We may be able to hear in my voice, I'm a little nasally, that's not what I'm sharing with you, just getting over a head cold, and one of the ways that I get over it quickly is just by staying healthy, which is why I love my Organifi products. You've probably heard me talk about Organifi. They have amazing superfood products, all kinds of superfoods and drinks and teas that are loaded with incredible, nutritious, delicious ingredients that really, really keep you healthy. They're well-sourced, they taste delicious, and I love them. And I am doing a giveaway in partnership with Organifi. I'm picking two winners to send three Organifi products each, and all you need to do to enter is write a review of this podcast, screenshot it, and DM me on Instagram, and I'll pick two winners at random to send these Organifi products. So again, write a review of this podcast. If you listen on iTunes, you can just go to the podcast screen, scroll down, and there's a place to rate and write a review. Take a screenshot of it once it posts, and DM me on Instagram, and then two winners will be selected to get three products each. But you don't have to wait. If you want to get your green juice, your red juice, your gold or immunity, which is one thing I've been upping, then go to Organifi.com slash over it. And that's where you can get a discount on Organifi products. Again, go to Organifi.com slash over it. I'm really loving their gold chocolate. Oh, I just love so much of their stuff. I have at least two Organifi things a day. So again, go to Organifi.com slash over it. And I look forward to giving two of you three free products. And now on to my interview with Hayden. Hayden, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Christine. I'm really excited to be here. Well, where I'd love to start, because I find that anyone who is doing work in the mental health arena usually has a story behind why this became an area of passion for them. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about what made you pursue a career in mental health? First off, I think it's really important to mention that I did not see this for myself at all. Hmm. You know, originally when I went to school, my undergrad, I went to school for vocal performance. Um, I love being in front of people and performing. And that was the thread that was like really important to me since I was younger. And I went into sales. And after I graduated my vocal performance degree, I just kind of knew that like that wasn't going to be my long term career. I was looking at graduate school and someone kindly kind of pointed me in the direction of doing more public service, human service work. And I found myself in a social work department thinking I was going to do a master's of public administration as well. And 
I was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. So like mental health was not something that I had thought about a lot in high school or even in my undergraduate days of college. But then I started to understand the ways in which my mental health and sort of my shame of being a gay man and, and being black and all of those different layers of who I was really made a difference to how I operated in the world and what I saw of the world and what I understood of myself and what I understood of other people. So I'm so grateful, though, that I am a compassion warrior that is living out their practice by doing mental health and relationship work. Um, and I've had lots of experiences around that. Mm, that was I, a long, drawn out answer. I'm sorry. No, that was a, per- I love, I love long answers. And that was just perfect. You said something that gave me goosebumps, a compassion warrior. I love that. How would you just define that? Yeah, it comes from like the Buddhist bodhisattva. Um, A lot of the Buddhist traditions really speak to me. And this is understanding that, you know, I want to use my own suffering to awaken myself from this human experience and condition. And whatever I might learn on the way that helps me, I want to pass it along to other people. I don't think this is a process where I'm ever going to be done, but compassion means to suffer with people. And I want to hold my suffering with as much grace and confidence as possible in front of me rather than behind me. And I want to use that to connect with other people and their suffering as well. I love that. I love that. And to me, the word warrior is someone who's willing to get out on the battlefield, willing to face the suffering, willing to go to those dark, often scary places inside and and heal and grow. I love that. I, I often say compassion is my superpower. And it started with me learning how to be with my suffering. And I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if not for my own suffering and wanting right. to, to help people navigate through theirs. So fellow compassion warriors, I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I think we find that we're not so different than everybody else and everyone else is not so different from us. Um, and I do agree with you. It takes a, it takes building that compassion kind of muscle to have that continued willingness to go deep down into that suffering. Um, that's just ever so present. It's so true. I, when I first started on my personal growth path, let's see, I saw my first shrink when I was 11 and my first life coach when I was 21. So I've, I've been around for a while pursuing this. And when I first worked on myself, I did it with so much judgment in so much analysis. I was always trying to figure out what was wrong with me Mm. rather than really being with my suffering. And it wasn't until my twenties, especially after working through with my life coach and then going and getting my master's in spiritual psychology, that I really learned the difference between trying to analyze and solve a problem versus really just being compassionate with suffering and not trying to fix something for me or someone else. And that's hard as a practitioner sometimes because I see people suffer or they have a question and, and there's that part of me, probably more my ego, that wants to get in and help and wants to get in and fix. But I find over and over that if I'm just compassionate with someone, that just goes a lot farther. Do, do you find that in practice as well? Oh my goodness, Christine. I mean, you're kind of speaking to a big piece of my work is recognizing sort of where I stop and where someone else begins. And I think for those of us that do this work and have been doing it for a long time, we see people suffering in a, and sometimes a, with clearer eyes than they may even be able to just because they may not have the tools. And I think I agree with you, the ego in this reflex to swoop down and help 
because of my own inability to to see and be with and to deal with my own anxiety around their suffering. So yes, I see it all the time. And it is something that I have to continue trying to practice to ground myself um, just so I can honor where they are. What are some of the things that you do to do that? We have a lot of coaches and therapists that listen to this show that often that also have huge hearts and feel and often take their clients home with them at the end of the day or after they get off Zoom or whatever the case may be. How do you ground yourself and remember that their problems are not yours? What a great question. I will say to everyone out there that is listening, I am no expert at this. I do not have it figured out completely. I think when I'm in session with someone, I think there are, like, I will literally say to myself, Hayden, fill your feet on the floor. Fill the back against your back of the chair. Feel, feel how weighty you feel. And I might, you know, I might start doing some grounding techniques right then and there. And that kind of helps take a little bit of the edge off. The other thing is I might get really curious about what's coming up. Am I doing this because it's helpful for them or am I doing this because I'm overly involved? Are there other areas in my life that I might be avoiding and work and being with clients is sort of an easier place for me to kind of tolerate. So there's some questions that one might want to ask themselves just to see what might be fueling sort of this, um, what I might call an over-attachment to the work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have found that as I've continued to work on myself, had my own coaches and therapists and practitioners, it has been easier and easier to hold space and ground and not take someone else's issues with me. I think that's just part of the training process and part of learning. I think when you begin as a practitioner, you take some of that on, your own triggers, conscious and unconscious, get triggered. And we think that we have to fix because we all kind of fall into that helper savior archetype a little bit. And with time and with practice, I find that it gets a little easier and easier to do. So for anybody listening, if you still are in that boat where sometimes you take people's stuff on, just stay with it. (laughs) You know, I know so many therapists and coaches end up abandoning the profession because of burnout. And I'm glad we're having this conversation because I really want to support practitioners in taking care of themselves so that they don't burn out. Are there any other things that you do, Hayden, that help you really stay present and, and keep you from burning out because you deal with some heavy stuff on a daily basis. Well, and I'll I'll sort of add, sort of, I'll disclose that I'm not seeing patients right now, um, Christine. One of the things when I went, decided to go back to school in order to earn my PhD in social work, because I really wanted to look at mental health systems in terms of how we can do better around race and intersectionality. I had a conversation with my therapist and I was like, you know what, Kate, I was like, I really don't think I can see anybody anymore. And she said, you know, I think there's a lot of wisdom to that because I had to start really sort of understanding where do I think I will make the greatest impact? What is it that might be my truest work? I think sometimes we can get caught up in certain roles as to how we think helping should look and feel. But, you know, some of the things I do on social media feel like an extension of my practice and the same similar themes of, Hayden, what's yours and what's theirs and what's ours um, is something that continues to be something I have to question. The other thing I have to say is surrounding yourself with other people that are 
friends of yours who are also in the work who can check you in a way that maybe not a colleague can do for you. I have a lot of friends who are in this work and they'll, they'll, they will lovingly, Hayden, you know, I really think you're getting a little crispy. I can remember working as a medical social worker and I came in and uh, after working with a family and I was kind of like a little bit on edge, a little reactive. And my colleague was like, "Mm, Hayden, like, so are you planning on taking any leave soon? (laughs) And I'm like, girl, what are you trying to say, honey? (laughs) And then I slowed down and I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. You know, there's another story. I came in and I was really busy and I I rushed into the hospital and it was like, I had like 10 minutes for lunch and I was like scarfing down my food. And someone who had been practicing a lot longer than me, she said, Hayden, you can sit down and you can eat this lunch. You do not get paid for the 30 minutes of your lunch. Mm. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, mm. you're exactly right. So surrounding yourself with people that really can stop you, you know, to be, sometimes you need an adult in the room and the adult in the room is not you. Right. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. Surrounding ourselves by people who can see us and remind us is so important. I love that. Well, shifting gears just for a moment, um, as I said in the introduction, I reached out to you because I was really uh, touched by the article that you wrote for Medium Invitation to White Therapists, where you said many things, but one of the things is white therapists and coaches and healers, if we are not holding ourselves accountable to learning about racism and methods to heal racial trauma, we are contributing to the pain of people rather than helping it. And that you know, everything that was going on back in June, this article really woke my eyes up to a lot of just unconsciousness that I had as a white coach and someone that was helping people of all different races. So I'd love to discuss this with you and just begin with what inspired you to write this article? Did you write it before the George Floyd murder murder, or was it something that came after that? Um, so it, it was really there are several things that were kind of leading up to this, probably my whole life, right? And then my whole practice career. But Ahmaud Aubrey was literally mowed down in a neighborhood like he was a deer. And it something along this was coming to me. And I'd been in a lot of sort of healing spaces and mental health clinics where Clinicians don't want to talk about race. They feel they get really reactive around it. They get really avoidant around it. And I could just picture someone that I could have possibly met with being greeted with a white clinician who they may have met with for many sessions who would not say anything due to their own blind spot or due to their own, I hate to say it like this, Christine, cowardice. And so, honestly, I was absolutely furious, especially in that first draft. Um, I had some loving, kind editors and friends who really helped me kind of massage the message and sort of bring more of the love and the compassion that I have through it. That is what inspired me. Like, I was like, enough is enough. And what I was most worried about is people in healing circles and a lot of spaces were just going to point fingers at you know, the criminal justice system without looking in the mirror as to their own complicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And what has been the response to that article since it came out? It's been overwhelmingly positive, and I think some folks have even thanked me for writing it. Um, I can think of some 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 folks that have been retired from the mental health field for years and working in predominantly you know people of color spaces and saying Hayden oh my gosh I didn't we didn't ask these questions we didn't know I feel such a tremendous amount of grief around this you know someone that had worked on um, a Native American reservation and the idea and the thought about historical trauma not coming up even though they were working with oh, wow. Native American children. And their families. Wow. Why do you think that there's just such, uh, I don't know, ignorance, unconsciousness? What do you think perpetuates that? Do you think that people really just don't see? Or do you think it's awkward and they don't want to see it? What do you think psychologically is underneath this? I think there's several things. But I think, you know, what would it be like if I said to you, Christine, you are where you are in life, not because of your merit, but because literally the color of your skin and because your family members have enslaved people for centuries and they got you wealth that brings you to where you are today. Like this whole American dream that you've been taught, this whole myth of Yankee Doodle and all of that manifest destiny, all of that, not only is it a lie, but really it is a facade with pain and suffering of generations and groups of people that have given you the pedestal that you have today. What, what does it, why would someone not want to look at that? Mm -hmm. Oh, a, a lot of reasons. <laughs> Denial, anger, defensiveness, uh, your, the collapse of your whole identity and how you think you got where you are. Um, having to look at the guilt and the shame that goes along with that. I mean, I can think of so many reasons why one wouldn't want to, to even talk about that much, less look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And then sort of we look like this, the ways in which we're socialized, you know, from what my understanding, a lot of white families, they're, they're socialized not to talk about it. You just don't talk about it. We don't want to bring attention to this because the guilt and shame is going to come up and, oh, you know, we don't see color. There's this color, colorblind racism, but yet we see color and we notice color and we notice these trends. We know these stereotypes. We know these tropes of people. So that's one of the reasons why we're not White folks are definitely not taught to talk about it. If they do talk about it, a whole host of sort of physio physiological um, reactions come up. And so there's really no space to metabolize that and to slow it down, slow the process down. Because it's, it's, it's just like any other type of psychological work that has to be done. We need healing spaces and circles where folks can metabolize that together. Yeah. Yeah, and there isn't the the defensiveness that comes up and the anger and all of that because that's one of the things that even sometimes when I try to talk about it within my own groups, it's immediate, especially with with white people, the immediate defensiveness comes up, and whenever we're in a defensiveness position, whether we're talking about racism or anything, there's no room to grow. There's no room to right. learn. There's no right. room to see someone else's perspective. 
So one of the things I've really tried to do is be really curious, be compassionate and be really curious about not just racism, but anyone who has an experience different than mine and how I may or may not impact their experience. And so going back to families talking about it, um, I know that I had conversations with many of my friends and my sister about how to talk to kids about racism. What advice or guidance do you have for parents to make this a, just a necessary and regular conversation in their homes? Well, and I think it's like any conversation that might be feeling kind of dicey for folks. Keep the door open. Don't feel like you have to get it all done in one swell swoop. You know, unfortunately, racism is not going away. So I think you need to, you have to learn, you have, your children need a literacy around this because if you don't teach them some things, the world is going to teach them something. And I think a lot of parents would rather fill that void than have the media and, you know, some white supremacist groups fill that void for them. And so there's a lot at stake. You know, black and brown people's lives are on their other side of a difficult conversation that you might have with your seven-year-old. And so slow down. Slow down and feel all of the discomfort and the pain that goes along with it. And just know that it is it's a tiny piece of what people of color have dealt with for generations. Mm. Mm. And when kids get confused about things, about... Because I know that one of the questions that one of my um, friend's sons brought to her when she was talking to him about racism is he's like, but I don't, he has a friend, um, I won't say the friend's name, but he has a friend who's black. And, and he's like, but I don't see him as different. Like, why does he have to be different? I don't see him as any different than me. And yet his mom was trying to explain that it is, there is a difference. And she didn't really know how to deal with the little boy's experience of not seeing him different, but trying to explain there is a difference. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so we know there's, there's two different levels. Like at the end of the day, I think we're all human beings, right? And there's also the level of like, we're all each individuals, but there's also this group affiliation. So there's that middle level. And I think Oftentimes, white folks will just try to skip over to the universal level or the individual level and never once want to see their group affiliation. And, you know, let's honor this, this, this child's confusion. It doesn't make sense. These are socially constructed um, groups. There really is no biological or genetical difference. So his confusion makes sense. So let's honor that and let's validate that. Um and let's not act like there's easy answers to this either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because going back to our earlier conversation, you know, I am not a, I'm not a parent, Christine, but mm -hmm. we can't fool our children the same way we can't fix our clients as there, there be easy answers for any of this. Yeah, that's true. And I think back to the compassion warrior, that's, that's the, the sort of the archetype I think of when having these conversations is that compassion warrior, really, really having deep compassion for someone else's experience, their trauma, their generational trauma are, are how we relate to it. But from that place of compassion rather than defensiveness or fix it. And like you said, it's not, it's not a quick conversation. These things have been, 
in our world for thousands of years. So how can we have just one conversation about it and be done? It's an ongoing conversation. And I, I really love that so many parents now are having that conversation with their children because th that generation, this was a formative event for them. And so hopefully they will start to see things differently than previous generations mm -hmm. have. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what you define as being anti-racist. What does that mean to you? Ooh, I've never had someone ask me to define it. Um, <laughs> I really think for me, understanding, number one, that we are racialized whether we choose to or to be or not, that we have a group affiliations, you know, just like that that little boy who couldn't understand why his black friend was being seen by others a certain way. You know, unfortunately, like there is a deep sorrow and grief for him that like, yeah, the world will see him a certain way. It is just fat. And so to me, someone who is anti-racist is someone who is committed to disrupting the, the typical flow in which people of color and particularly black and indigenous people experience lesser outcomes in life compared to those who are racialized as white. So if you are committed to that and you have an active practice that is focused on behaviors and thoughts and really willing to look at it as the way it operates in you and the way in which it operates outside in the world, and you're willing to disrupt that flow in any way, I consider that an anti-racist practice. Mm. Mm. And specifically for therapists and coaches and healers, any advice for them when it comes to dealing with cli clients who are people of color who may not have brought up any racial trauma and you may think, oh, they must not have any. So you don't bring it up. What advice would you have for practitioners to bring this into the conversation? I think so we have to look at there's, there could be two extremes of this. On one hand, saying, oh, they're not bringing it up. I shouldn't say anything about it. On the other hand is the clinician, the white clinician, wanted, that's the only thing they want to talk about. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's likely something that's in between those two things. Mm -hmm. And not all clients of color are going to want to talk to a white face about it. They're just not. Yeah. But I think what's important is this. From a cultural humility perspective, letting your clients know that you are willing to talk about it and you're willing to make mistakes about it. And if you when I when you do make mistakes, you're not gonna burden them with your guilt and your shame. Yes. Yes. Not the apologies, not the I'm so sorry, not trying to absolve your guilt by being a good person. Yeah, I I completely feel that and resonate with that. And when I whenever I've had a client who's a person of color, it's definitely has been something that's always in my awareness because as you were saying before, we're all human beings and we each have our own unique experiences that make our unique experience of being a human being unique. So I may be working with someone who grew up with an alcoholic parent. That wasn't my experience, but I'm still going to hold the space for them to talk about it. Same with, I may be work, work, working with a client who grew up dealing with racism or even just microaggressions, not my experience, but I'm still going to hold the space 
for the safe space for them to talk about it. And I think that, you know, for me as a practitioner, my number one intention is to hold a safe space, a safe space so that anything that comes up, that person knows that it's safe for them to talk about it. And they don't need to worry about me in the situation. They don't need to worry about offending me. They don't need to worry about setting me. They don't need to worry about taking care of me. None of that. Sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. So I want to, so my, my therapist is a white woman, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But even I have to question whether I am holding back, not saying certain things because mm. she's my therapist. So we have to really understand that there is, that we all unconsciously police our thoughts and our behaviors in different ways, depending on who's in front of us. And I think that might be something that in my mind, I think white therapists should just understand is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, how and it's a limitation. Mm. Mm. Is there a way around that? Probably not. It's just like, you know, I, when I meet with women, like I have to understand, like as much as I want to understand and do my work around women's issues and understanding a women's autonomy and anatomy, that it is important for me to understand that like, there might be certain things that I may not hear because of who I am. And I'm not saying there's anything, it just is. I don't want to put a judgment to it. Right. You know, I had a colleague in my doctoral program, and they said something that really I found very validating. Just so we can understand like where some folks are with this. And they said, you know, Hayden, I can understand why some of my students of color don't trust me being a white person. And again, Christine, I think this goes back to the notion of what you're saying. Like we get so caught up in being the savior and we think we have to be the savior for all people. I, as a black gay person, have to understand that people would discount me from the moment that they look at me. White people never once consider that when they are looked at by some people that they instantly do not trust them. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the key distinctions. And that's one of the, when I attempt to explain privilege that's a key point is that there's certain things that you just don't have to think about. There's certain things that never mm -hmm. cross your mm -hmm. mind. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit more about the work you're doing for your PhD. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that brought me into studying more about mental health systems and how they can be more responsive to in particularly LGBTQ people of color is because when I was working in the field what I noticed is we could have these practitioners that were working for a long time doing the work. They were skilled. They were seasoned. They could talk about everything from suicide to childhood sexual abuse to combat trauma. But as soon as we started talking about race and privilege, like the whole room would just kind of just be the parting of the Red Seas and be really weaponized and reactionary. So I said, oh my gosh, I have got to go back to school to see what I can understand in order to sort of make this better. And so one of the things that I feel like is really important is really understanding intersectionality. And what that means is how is my experience of being Hayden how do you look at my experience and understand that you can't just understand me just being gay 
and just me being black. You have to understand what does it mean to be at the intersection of being a black gay man? That is a unique experience that white gay men do not experience and that um, black heterosexual men don't experience. There is something unique at the at where I sit with that, and some common threads that can be held with all kind of queer people of color, and yet there's going to be some differences with that. So one of my aims with my research is to help us understand that intersectionality conversations in therapy spaces, both from a policy level as well as a direct practice interpersonal level, these conversations should be. Um, mandatory. They shouldn't just be exceptions. Mm, I love that. I love that because we're, we're leaving out a huge piece of people's experience and what it means for them to move through the world. And also the, the trauma that they endured as childhood because of that, in addition to dysfunctional parents, bully, like all the other things that we deal with as children in some ways, we're leaving out a huge piece of the puzzle. And thank you for being someone that's really advocating, bringing it back not, not back in, <laughs> putting it into the systems that we have. One of the things that I think is really exciting about this year, despite everything that has been so challenging, but with any challenge comes opportunity, is we're really seeing the dysfunction of our systems mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how, absolutely, yeah, how so many things need to be rebuilt. And, you know, one of the reasons that I didn't pursue and this is not a knock on therapist or therapy or anything like that. I'm just speaking about my experience. One of the reasons I didn't pursue being a clinician and being a licensed therapist was because my experience with psychiatrists, and, and, and again, this is just my experience, was a little cold and a little clinical. Mm-hmm. And then I met my first life coach and and she was more than a life coach. She was a spiritual teacher. She was just pure love. She's radiated pure love. And she hugged me <laughs> and she mm. called me baby <laughs> and nothing was <laughs> off limits. And she talked about sex. So I felt comfortable talking about sex. Like there wasn't this barrier and it wasn't mm-hmm. like she was on this pedestal. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, all this shame and judgment started yeah. to evaporate off of me because she just held, and we're going to get to this, she just gave me such permission to be myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. why I pursued you know, spiritual psychology, consciousness, health, and healing, things sort of outside this traditional system because I, I didn't want that. It felt antiquated to me, a lot yeah. of it. Yeah. And I think we need a reboot, especially of the mental health system, because we're too quick to put labels on people. I Amen. Think. Oh my gosh. Yes. We're too quick to prescribe drugs. We're too quick to put people in a silo and just tell them this is who you are. And, you know, a lot of things, uh, I think a lot of clinicians also haven't, and I raised my hand to this years ago too, hadn't really done enough of their own work to remove a lot of their own unconscious biases and triggers to really be able to show up and hold that clean space. So I just want to thank you and acknowledge you for being a trailblazer in this field and 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 going and sounding the alarm and saying, okay, this needs to like be massively broken down and updated because we're leaving a lot of people out. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I appreciate your work because I think here's the thing. We all got to get our healing where we can get it. You know, and I often say, you know, because even in for those of us who are licensed clinicians, there's always this the battle of which profession is better. And I'm like, at times, you know, my ego can get caught up into it, of course. You know, I love my profession. And there's other times where I'm like, 
Our clients do not care. They just want to get better. So true. And the gatekeeping and you're right, throwing out labels. You know, I sometimes I'd like if we all just lived in tribes of 75 people or less roaming the world, the planet <laughs> together, we would be so much happier. It's so true. It's so true. It's been a conversation I've been having with my community here in Austin is where can we go buy some land and just do this ourselves? Because wow, like it, taking care of each other and everybody having their different place in the tribe. And it's just, there's, there's something to that. And in a lot of ways, I think we're finding our way back to that. And that's one thing I've had to realize too, is that I'm not going to be, not everybody's going to resonate with me. I'm not going to be able to be, to help everybody. I'm not going to be someone that everybody relates to. Mm -hmm. I can only serve the people that I can serve. And that's great Mm -hmm. because if I was, if it was my responsibility to serve everybody, that would be impossible. So we need... Well, my ego (laughs) wants me to serve everybody, Christine. I'm here to tell you. My heart is huge. You know, I feel that. Yeah, there's this Anne Lamott quote that I heard a few years ago, and I still have to come back to it because it's like any, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is like any of our deep, true work, like, you know, that deep, deep work, we're always going to have some of these same patterns that we do. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I'm getting off again. Let me come back. When it was the quote says, lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They stand there shining my goodness, do I have to go back to that? And it kind of goes back to that whole conversation we were saying about trying to help everyone. And it's, that may not be our boat. Yeah. Yeah. And we may not be the best lighthouse for that boat, <laughs> you know? And I, I definitely have come across people that I've referred out because I'm like, you know what? There's going to be somebody that has walked this path before that's going to be so much better for you. I haven't walked this path. I can empathize and I can have so much compassion, but there's certain steps I haven't taken. Mm. And I'm going to help you find someone who is a little ahead of you on the path that you're on. And I think that's one of our responsibilities too, is to, to not, if we know that we're trying and trying, but there's someone that we just really can't serve to help them find someone who can to really empower them to, to find that person. Um, I want to speak about radical permission because I know that's something that you're really passionate about. You've, you did a radical permission challenge on Instagram. What's your definition of radical permission and what inspired you to uh, be so passionate about giving people permission? Or basically making them give themselves permission. (laughs) Yeah. So back in 2018, I did 100 days of writing a permission slip to myself for um, 100 days. And so many people would like send me texts like, oh, Hayden, that one really resonated with me. Or they'll say on my Instagram, like, oh, I love this. And I really noticed like how slowing down and being intentional about like, what is it that like I most needed to do for me and what, what, what barriers I was already putting up for myself that I could just say, Hey, and you have permission to just let that go. And it was really helpful. I don't always keep a permission slip practice, but when I do, my life is just, I'm always a lot more at ease and accepting of so many things. So right when I think, I can't remember when we did it, it may have been July or so, I just, it felt like everyone's world was shrinking at that time. It was just really scary for me. And I could see sort of similar themes kind of across the ether 
And I said, you know what? I think we should do a collective practice. Other people had done permission slips before in their work, but I was like, there's something powerful about Christine, by you giving yourself permission to be who you are and to love your work and for you to say, you know, I can't serve everyone, that gives me permission to say, you know what, Hayden, maybe you need to give yourself permission to like really be a lot more gentle and self-compassionate and say, I can't do this. I'm, I'm going to give myself permission to refer this client out. Mm, mm. And the collective practice was really beautiful, kind of organic, um, contagious way in which so many people were creating relationships around permission giving to themselves. And for me, a permission slip is to do the thing that you know you ought to do, but yet your old habits kind of pull you in a different direction. And it's to be the adult in the room and the adult within yourself and say, you know, you have permission to do this. Mm. Mm. Or you have permission to not do it too. If you have been oh, a pusher absolutely. your whole life and you need to rest, that would be me. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. So me too. Like oh, my permission slip generally is like, Hayden, give yourself permission to rest. Give yourself permission to say no. Mm-hmm. Oh no. Without an excuse, apology or justification following it. Oh my gosh. My eyes are rolling right now. Cause that yeah. is so me. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I remind myself, no is a complete sentence. Christine it can be no period. And that's okay. The people pleaser in me freaks out about that one. And permission I, is is so huge because I think that it's, it's wired to that inner critic, that, that part mm-hmm. of us that is so hard on ourselves because it believes that that's how we will be successful, safe, validated, mm-hmm. loved, and belong in life. Mm-hmm. And so it pushes and pushes and pushes. And if we can get this permission granter, this, this piece of us that gives this, per, uh, this radical permission, it seems like it can help override a little bit or, or quiet the volume of that inner mm-hmm. critic. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think about like, it, it disrupts the normal flow of the pattern, but I think the disruption is gentle. It's hard to give someone permission in a loud, angry kind of internal voice. You're not really given permission if you're screaming at someone, go ahead and do it. Like you're really not, but it, it doesn't really kind of go in kind of the whole ethos of permission giving, permission granting. So I really think it's just a real gentle kind of intentional nudge in a different direction, even if it might feel scary. It will. I'm sure most of the time it does because we're going against old patterns. We're going against that that wiring. We're going against parts of us that have kept us safe quote unquote, <laughs> yeah. those, those survival patterns in so many ways. But this is, this is huge, especially right now. And I want to talk about this year and the mental health of people this year with COVID, because that's, that's a whole other trauma that I think we're experiencing collectively right now mm-hmm. on so many levels. What do you think we need to give ourselves permission to do or feel or be while dealing with everything that's going on collectively. All of it. I think Mm. around the holidays in particular, we have so many traditions that we may have to give ourselves permission to grieve for this year and to, to do less, um, to feel more, um, to take up space in a different way. You know, I can't do this, but I want to give myself permission to do that. 
Or give yourself permission to enjoy this time. I think that can be really scary. There's so much grief and mourning. It can be really hard to, and I, I can resonate with this. There's times where I feel a lot of joy and I'm not sure if it's safe in wherever I am because a lot of people are feeling sad and mourning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that what you said is amazing because I, there's often pressure to find the blessing and be grateful and we just adapt and this is our new normal. And yes, I get all that. And there's a time and a place for all that. But what you said about giving ourselves permission to grieve, giving ourselves mm-hmm. permission to feel our feelings, giving ourselves permission to maybe feel our anger about mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. That's that's giving ourselves permission to feel, which a lot of us didn't have that permission as kids or even adults. <laughs> We've suppressed and repressed and all those things. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and honestly, Christine, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation had I not written a permission slip to myself at the end of May to channel my anger in order to rehumanize what it means to be a black man. Because that was the permission slip that had me write an invitation to white therapists. Wow. And so permission given to yourself really can help change the world. Oh, Hayden, what you said brought tears to my eyes. That is so powerful. And that's how we shift things. I didn't know that's what I was doing when I wrote that. And I didn't see the connection to the permission slip to the writing until like a month later. And I looked on my Instagram feed and I was like, oh my gosh, that was like a week or maybe two weeks before I had written an invitation. And because of that permission slip, I remember there was a few mornings before um, I finished writing, I could not sleep. I kept stirring and stirring. And so I just sat down and it just kind of came out of me because I gave myself the radical permission to truly just let the anger come through me and not say, no, you shouldn't, you didn't. I just let it, just let it happen. And I, I had to trust myself and trust the people around me to kind of hold the container. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anger misdirected is destructive, but anger channeled in a healthy way can be incredibly transformative. Yeah. And I, I, I feel transformed by it for Mm. sure. Mm. How do you feel different today than you did a year ago? Um, I'm so much more confident. I'm so much more um, willing to contact random people on the internet and say, hey, I need you to read this or this is what I think is really important to the work. And one of the things I like to think about, Christine, is, you know, sometimes our ego will keep us small. If I let my ego, it would keep me from doing the work of whatever I'm here to usher into the world. We People think of ego as like, oh, it's just going to, you're going to be big and take up a lot of space. No, sometimes your ego will keep you a little tiny person in the corner. Operating in the flow and away from the ego will actually help you appropriately take up as much space that's yours. Mm. And the world needs more of that. Mm. And if you had stayed angry and not channeled it in the ways that you have, what do you think would have happened? I would have turned bitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the compassion piece and my kind of fleshy, gooey heart um, mm. that might calcify. Mm. Yeah, anger does tend to do that. Like I said before, anger is very destructive if not to ourselves or to others, if not really channeled. But it's powerful. 
you know, well, I, it turns into resentment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Resentment, bitterness, depression, disease, separation, all, all kinds of things. But so much of the big changes in the world have come from people being angry. But instead of attacking themselves or others, it's channeled into ways of, well, how am I going to change it? Like that's what Absol- true activism is, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, and and again, the coded messages that certain groups, you know, women, people of color, queer folk have around anger and when and where is it safe to express it? Um, these are all sort of deep questions that I think is really important to hold. Um, you know, I ask, I, I, I ask particularly white women therapists, like what would it mean for you or, or coaches? What would it mean for you if your black male client wanted to express anger towards you when you're taught to fear them? Mm. Mm. Like, are you really, do you, is your container, is your nervous system able to hold that? If not, then honey, I'm sorry, girl, you got work to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was one of the reasons I, at my women's retreat, I facilitate an anger burn and it's big and it's loud and it's long and it's, it's not just cathartic. It's very therapeutic. It's facilitated. There's different waves that the women ride. And a lot of women are really want to make excuses as to why they can't do it. Um, I grew up in a chaotic house. My nervous system can't take it. I'm not angry. I'm like, we're all, there's all, there's pieces of each of us that is angry inside. No human being doesn't have any anger inside of them unless they really, really, really worked it. And if we don't touch that anger inside of us, the world is a much scarier place. Everyone's scarier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, when, mm-hmm. when I have found that anger inside of me, that fire inside of me, I, I can be with anger other people's anger in a mm-hmm. way where I can hold it. Now, if someone's directly coming at me, that's in an altercation kind of way, that's different. But holding space in a container for someone to express their anger, that was a muscle I had to develop. But I had to do it by getting at my own anger and not being so scared of it. I think so many of us are scared of our own anger. So Absolutely. we're terrified of anyone that either, either is angry or could be threatening in any way. Um, not to mention the unconscious biases that you said. I just am very passionate about people doing their anger work because I think, you know, for me, I I didn't share. I was on antidepressants from 11 till age 30 mm. and getting off of them, uh, a big part of it was doing my anger work and finding that, that rage and that voice and that loudness and that messiness inside of me because we all right. have it. We right. all have it. Well, so. yeah. And I think for, and I think what you're getting to is for me, it's helped me because of this work and how I'm different is like, I feel so much more expansive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can feel it in your voice and in your energy and the way you talk. You just, you, like you said, you do have this gooey heart and also this incredible strength that is an, a really inspiring combination. And I oh, love, thank you. yeah, I loved our conversation. I'd love to finish with, for our listeners, if you were to write them one big radical permission slip that they could take on as an inspiration to start writing their own, what would you say to them? Mm, let me think about this yeah, for a yeah, second. Yeah. I would invite them to give themselves permission to be fully themselves mm. and to be fully present as they are mm. and to, yeah, like live into that, breathe into that, 
Mm. And it's, it's an, you know, invite more of themselves into the world. Mm. I love that. Stop playing small, stop putting the masks on, contorting yourself into a pretzel to please other people, living up to those expectations of others and just be you. Mm -hmm. It's a risky thing being ourselves, but it's riskier not to be. (laughs) Well, and I just, I find so much more connection with um, myself and with other people when I am myself. And, you know, unfortunately, it both fortunately and unfortunately, I am a lighthouse. People gravitate towards me because of that. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that you will gain so much more by being yourself. So true. It's so liberating. It's so much less work. It's so much easier to be ourselves than to please the world. That's for sure. Oh, Hayden, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Christine. I've had a great time. We've spent, we've gone through all these different topics in this short amount of time. So it's been great. Yeah. And I, where can people connect with you? Where can people find you? I know you're on Instagram and yeah. Yeah. Instagram, Twitter, um, hcdaws.com um, is my website. You can sign up for my newsletter. I do a monthly newsletter um, on Twitter and on Instagram, um, hcdaws.com. And also for folks that are on LinkedIn, you can find me at Hayden Dawes, H-A-Y-D-E-N Dawes, D-A-W-E-S. Awesome. Thank you, Hayden. <laughs>